0: Okay, great. Um, Our speaker, Kale, will share his own recovery journey, and then he will guide us through a study of step eight. He will be referring to our big book, Eating Disorders Anonymous. He will provide page references as indicated. There will be some time for questions and member sharing after Kale finishes. Some members might find that the book is much easier to follow if using a paper version of the book. If you only have the book on an electronic device, you may prefer to just listen. I'm Kale, I'm Lisa. I'm timing things tonight. Do, do you want any particular reminders at any time marks or anything? Oh, uh, you're still <laughs> muted, it looks like, Kale. No. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. There we go. Better. Yes. <laughs> so on a Mac, it's Command Shift and A. All no, right. <laughs> You're computer, I see. <laughs> um, do you want any uh, time reminders, like a heads up at three minutes before, or I don't know? Yeah, that would be excellent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The floor is yours. Cool. Well hello everyone. Um, My name is Kale and I am in recovery from an eating disorder and it is my honor today to be with you to share a little bit about my experience strength and hope Um, or in other words um, as I've learned it's um, you know what I used to be like uh, what happened and what I'm like now Uh, and then afterward I'll dive into how all of my experience pertains to, or the experience at least that I'll be sharing, how it all kind of pertains to step eight. And then we'll do a a little bit deeper dive into step eight. Um, So to start off, I'll share a little bit about myself and my journey to recovery. Um, So what I used to be like. Um, So I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri. before I hit puberty, I was always kind of a heavyset kid, um, and I was made fun of a lot, and felt a lot of shame about my weight. Um, and I can definitely see now how my experiences at a young age laid a solid foundation for my eating disorder to develop. At the same time though, faith was always incorporated into my life. Although my family did not regularly attend, um, church services or any religious institution, Um, religion was always a big part of my life. Growing up, I can see that my life was never really balanced. I now have a much better picture of what it looks like or what it means to be balanced. And I can see that I did not possess any of those characteristics, you know, growing up. For example, uh, when I was in high school, I either was like drinking excessively um, and partying on the weekends with friends, or I was completely sober and devout to my church. There was really no in between for me. So it was either I was like this bad kid or this really good devout Christian kid. And uh, I never really found a way to balance balance that out. It seemed like I would do a number of bad behaviors and then you know for a few months I would be like, oh, I need to go to church all the time. And then I would get back into the bad behaviors and whatnot. Um, There was never much of a balance. And an underlying characteristic I have is perfectionism. So one thing I never really liked to do is starting. I never really liked to start new things. I never liked to um, try new things unless I felt very confident that I would be the best at it. Um, For example, like I you know, didn't see the point in, you know, trying to, um, you know, start out on my career unless I was going to ultimately be the president of the United States. And if I'm not gonna be president, you know, why even like work, you know, there's no, I was never satisfied with, um, you know, just normal things. You know, it's like either I have to be the best or nothing. Um, So my home life is pretty standard up until i was about 15 or so my um at that time my parents got pretty deep into drugs um and my mom was forced to go to rehab a few times and my dad continued to abuse drugs and that was kind of uh, a rocky point in my life their split ultimately was pretty traumatic for me my dad was very physically abusive and my mom had to go to the hospital a few times because of the abuse Ultimately, my mom and my little brother and I escaped that situation by moving to Arizona back in 2008, Um, and it was very difficult for me to move to a new state from Missouri um, into a new high school. It was my sophomore year of high school. Um, I didn't have many friends, or I didn't have any friends when I started, um, and I never really made that many either. Um, Instead, I worked over, usually typically over about 40 hours a week. Um, at a local Chili's um, and while at Chili's I uh, made friends there and a bunch of the service there always seemed to be on one diet or another and I remember that when I um, and I remember that when I was 16 I started my first extreme diet and uh, it was sort of a way of fitting in that was a way that I bonded with the other people um, they were all older than me like I was just a high school kid who was bussing tables and the servers were all, you know, in their, you know, somewhere in their 30s, somewhere in their 20s, um, not very many teenagers, but it was my way of fitting in with them was like kind of um, doing these extreme diets. And another way um, of fitting in is smoking cigarettes. So when I was 16, I started to smoke cigarettes because everyone else did. And full disclosure, I still smoke to this day. And it's something I regret deeply. But um, I always wanted to fit in and I always wanted to be well liked and popular. In a sense, I felt that being thin was a, ne- uh, was a necessary prerequisite to fitting in or just to being liked. My weight, however, became less of a concern after I grew several inches in high school. It seemed like my body had its own agenda and it didn't matter what I ate. So I would say it was pr- like I was a pretty normal eater for a couple of years uh, after you know, I kind of thinned out from, from growing. And um, so weight, like, became, you know, less of an issue for me, Um, but um, as I graduated high school and started college at Arizona State, um, things took, I would say, a dramatic shift for me when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, One night after the Super Bowl that year, I was sexually assaulted by a gentleman in a fraternity who was ashamed of his sexuality, and in that situation, I was completely... Powerless and felt as though I had lost all control. Um, My natural instinct at that time was to turn to eating disorder behaviors, specifically those um, that have to do with bulimia. Uh, You know, acting out in eating disorder behaviors that uh, became my solution. Uh, Those those behaviors progressed over several months until I moved to Washington D.C. as a program as part of a program at ASU. Um, I remember acting out my behaviors in the US Senate building and feeling so ashamed after I think a Senate staffer heard me. Um, And I decided that day that I would stop. Um, I felt very embarrassed. Um, And and so I spent several months in what I thought was recovery, mostly running off of self-will, then after returning to Arizona to finish college, after my semester long program in DC, I was introduced to a prescription drug that many of my peers used to help study. For me, it, was completely, it completely removed my appetite and gave me an abundance of energy so I didn't have to sleep as much either. I felt like Superman when I was on this drug. After graduating from ASU, I started my first job in Midland, Texas. There, I couldn't get the drugs so I found a doctor and I lied to him. Uh, I said that I had been on this medication since I was a wee lad and that I needed it to help me focus and that it was just a normal thing. Uh, he believed to me ultimately and I was prescribed the medication. Um, this medication carried me through the first years of my career, including my move to Los Angeles, which occurred after about eight months in Texas. So I'm moving around a lot Um, during my story it's part of my experience so I would have to say that my eating disorder really thrived in Los Angeles Um, I feel like everyone there in my I hate to say everyone but in my view people a lot of people uh, were very focused on the diet culture and having the perfect body having a great job Um, you know and that really fueled my perfectionism and my competitiveness, and I really wanted to keep up with others. I feel like I became very materialistic in Los Angeles, and I kind of lost sight of you know, my Christian values that I feel like I was raised with. Um, eventually, the firm that I was working for at the time announced plans to expand into Phoenix, um, and I was asked to lead that initiative. So because of my experience here, my family's here, I went to college here, I went to high school here, Um, I have roots here. So given my knowledge of the Arizona market, I made the move back to Arizona. And shortly after I returned, uh, my body started to shut down. Uh, My medication was no longer giving me that energy boost that it once did. And uh, it didn't matter how much I took. It did not matter like how much coffee I had. It didn't matter what I did. Um, I had no energy ever. And my depression Um, was escalating to a point that was very concerning. Um, At this time, I was receiving a lot of comments from people about my weight and decided to take it upon myself to eat more. I thought that I could get my way out of my eating disorder, sort of how I, um, you know, overcame, in a sense, bulimia. Um, If I could conquer one form of the eating disorder, I thought, you know, I can conquer the other, and the other, and the other after that. Um, It seemed like my eating disorder would take many different forms. Um, If I like conquered, in a sense, one version of the eating disorder, another one would would come up. So what happened, so that's what I used to be like, uh, what happened, um, I had moderate success in gaining my weight back, but found that the more weight I restored, the worse my mental health became. For all of the years that I was, you know, under eating, um, I became very numb and that was a comforting feeling. It was a, uh, you know, a suppression of a lot of emotions, a lot of things that I never dealt with. You know, it was, like I said, like my eating disorder was my solution to some things that had happened. Uh, I was chronically anxious, depressed, and still lacked the energy and motivation that I once had, even though, I was, you know, technically weight restored. Um, I had often at this time, you know, day, I would have like daydreams about what it would be like to die. And, um, you know, I would think about things I had, like I would plan my own funeral. Um, I would, you know, always kind of like daydream about what that was like. And I thought that was always kind of a normal thing until, you know, talking to a therapist and found out it wasn't like all that normal. Um, and I, even though I had those thoughts, I never really thought I was capable of taking my own life. Um, it's not something that I like, wanted to do. Like, I, I never thought that I was like suicidal. Um, but until one night after a day of excessive drinking with friends, I came home to an empty apartment and was terrified. I feared I would do something extreme. So I called a dear friend of mine in Los Angeles who also struggles with an eating disorder. And she said, I had to go see a therapist. She said, you gotta get help. And I was like, what do I do? You know, I just like, these thoughts are like only increasing and they're only getting worse. Um, So she was like, well, you just need to see a therapist. So the next day I signed up for an outpatient treatment program at an eating disorder facility in Scottsdale, Arizona, a suburb of Phoenix. And one of the first things that my therapist noticed about me is my faith in God. Uh, his, one of his initial suggestions that I thought was awful is that he said I should go to AA. Um, he said just because of the, you know, the spiritual aspect of AA's 12 Steps, he thought it would be a good solution to me. Um, I have to say I balked at that idea. And I said, you know, I don't really want to get sober. Uh, ultimately, I would rather have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Like I've noticed that I've abused it in the past. Um, to suppress feelings. But in the same way, I would want to have a healthy relationship with food. I want to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. And so that's when he was like, well, you could try EDA. I don't really know much about it. It's you know, smaller than AA, but give it a try. And so I did. I, uh, my first step was ordering an EDA book from Amazon and avoiding meetings for several months. Um, however I did really like the book I uh I related a lot to it and I found um that you know some of the stories like for example uh, Giselle's story um Giselle's story of hope um is one that I related to a lot and um so I ultimately made the decision to go to a meeting one Thursday and uh I loved it. I loved the experience. I loved the fellowship and uh, continue to go. Like I have to admit, actually, my second meeting didn't come until a few months later because I was invited to participate in the softball league that was also on Thursday nights. And I was like, well, that's a sign that I should not go to EDA, but instead hang out with my friends and play softball. So I did not go back to EDA after my first meeting for a while, Um, but at the same time, my depression was increasing. I was miserable and I was exhausted and I was ready to feel better, so much so that I eventually became willing to do anything. And that included going to EDA. So I ultimately went back to EDA after probably about two months after my first meeting. And I made a commitment to myself that I would attend three meetings a week, because at this time I didn't have great insurance. It was enough to cover my individual therapy. Well, I mean, I still had a co-payment, but I couldn't afford much more than that. So my therapist suggested a higher level of care, but I just couldn't afford it. So I created my own IOP, Intensive Outpatient Program, by attending three EDA meetings a week and working the steps with a sponsor, and I continued to go to individual therapy once a week. Uh, recovery, in a sense, kind of took over my whole life, and slowly but surely, I started to find, spe- find peace. So, what I am like now. Um, so we'll get there next week when we talk about step nine, I'm sure, but I feel like, in all honesty, I am living the ninth step promises. Um, it talks about in the ninth step promises that You know, we know peace and we comprehend the word serenity. And uh, my whole attitude and my whole outlook on life has changed. Um, I feel like I know that I'm in recovery because I no longer want to die anymore. That's no, like I no longer have those fantasies of my funeral. Um, I no longer have those thoughts. So um, whereas my career in material success was once the higher power, if you will, I served, I've since reconnected with the God that I knew my whole life and I have committed to serving him and the people about me service and the attitude of gratitude are the keys of my life for the first time in my life. I feel like I found balance. I can, I met my goal. I feel like I have a healthy relationship with goal alcohol, I feel like I can still drink in moderation with my friends while ensuring I still attend Sunday mass each week. Um, Whereas like before it was either like one or the other, either I'm going to be, you know, on some bender or I'm going to be in mass every day. But now I go once a week and I still, you know, drink in moderation. It's just an example. And um, to this day, I still attend at least one EDA meeting a week. And I'm working with several sponsees and I continue, I feel like I continue to give back to the program that gave so much, that has given so much to me. Um, I think I mentioned this, I feel like I realized that I was in recovery when, um, you know, I don't want to die anymore. Like I view life completely differently. Like the ninth step promise it says, like our whole attitude not look upon life has changed. So in my case, like life is no longer something that I just endure. Um, it's not a burden, but, you know, kind of an exciting journey, full of opportunities of, of growth, if you will. So I feel like the place where I'm in now is one that is full of peace, which I really appreciate. One of the keys to my recovery is step eight. So I'm going to transition from my story and talk to you a little bit about step eight and how I have applied that to my life and how it's played a role in my, my recovery. So the steps are definitely what I credit for, give, for bringing me to this place of peace that I'm in now. And um, step eight plays a big role in that. So step eight, I think we'll go ahead and read it. It starts on page 179. It's actually in multiple places in the book. Um, when I worked the steps initially, I didn't realize that you could also work them by looking at step 12 and you know, looking at um, how to work the steps as well as the index in the back where an EDA member works the steps is another resource you can use. But when I initially was working the steps, I really um, just used, you know, chapters. um, I don't know the chapter numbers. How it works into action. So chapters five, six, and seven. And I also used the AA Big Book and AA is 12 and 12. That was how I initially worked the steps, but for the purposes of this workshop, I will focus on the literature and the EDA book which I found to be my favorite anyway. So on page 179 in the EDA Big Book, it starts out with step eight. So I'll read it. So step eight is that we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to to make amends to them all. So there's a running joke in my home group on Monday nights because I will often volunteer to sh- share on certain steps because we have someone sharing a different step every week. And I'll often say, oh, that step's my favorite. I'll go ahead and share on that. And someone called me out once and said, you said that about three, six, and 11, and, um, or whatever the steps were. And so there's like a joke. Everyone's like, oh, is this one your favorite, Kale? And uh, I can tell you that is one thing I would never say about step eight. It is not my favorite and nor is step nine. I don't like these steps. I don't enjoy working them. Um, they're very challenging for me, but I think that I would, I would say that I gained the most recovery from these steps. I grew tremendously. Um, I have grown a tremendous amount thanks to the process of making amends and more importantly, forgiving in my case. so. The I want to go ahead and read the long form of step eight, which is on 180. I kind of like it a little bit better than just the short form. Um, It's more detailed and hits on a couple other elements. So kind of second half of page 180 in italicized text. The long form of EDA's eighth step says, we made a list of all people we had treated badly No matter how they had treated us, we accepted responsibility for our part and made an effort to forgive them for their part. So, the book will go on to say, you know, in that next paragraph, that forgiveness is something that brings us peace. So, I'm gonna read a little bit from the text um, right under that italicized part. So, forgiveness brought us peace, yet perhaps we cannot forgive everything. Sometimes people have treated us and others in ways that are simply unconsciousable, unconsciousable. I don't really know how to say that word, so forgive me. In such cases, we remember that we ourselves seemed helpless in the grip of our eating disorders. At times we felt that we had no effective choice in what we thought and did. We were powerless in the grip of emotions and unable to manage our thoughts and behavior. Now that we are asked to forgive people who have hurt us, we consider that perhaps they too were swept away by tides of emotion and patterns of thought and behavior that they could not seem to control. So the book says, you know, in that part and further into it, that basically not everything, you know, we don't have to forgive everything. Um, So on page 181, that next paragraph, I'm gonna jump down a little bit, It says while forgiveness is critical to our own recovery we feel it is important to point out that in cases where we were the object of rather than the perpetrator of serious injuries such as rape or battery we are personally accountable for ensuring the situation is safe for everyone in other words there is a present if there is a present danger to others we think it is advisable to contact the proper authorities to ensure that the perpetrator is in custody or otherwise publicly tracked, if at all possible. And so, I mean, some would argue, I feel like, in my case, that my experience in college would fall under that category. Um, And um, at first, it definitely did. I felt like um, the Person who sexually assaulted me my sophomore year of college was someone that I would never forgive and that I didn't have to. Um, but I have to say this program ultimately helped me to forgive this person. I have since forgiven this person. And uh, although I've never made amends to this person because I feel like I didn't do anything particularly wrong in my case, but I still chose to forgive him because I felt it was my only choice to be able to move on. I realize now that no one is perfect, kind of like the book talks about, um, you know, kind of put things in a different perspective. You know, I'll read it again. Now that we are asked to forgive people who have hurt us, we consider that perhaps they too were swept away by tides of emotion and patterns of thought and behavior that they could not seem to control. So that really put a lot of, gave me a perspective shift. I uh, now see, you know that you know not only is not everyone perfect, but you know they can feel like out of control in some cases. Um, I don't. I so I still don't, you know, excuse this person's actions, and I'm certainly not calling on everyone to forgive others who abused them in some way. I think it's a personal decision um, and it's not a requirement for everyone's recovery. I think that you would be not wrong to decide not to forgive someone if you were in a similar situation. And if you were, I'm sorry that happened to you and you don't have to forgive them. But for me, it was, uh, it was ultimately the best decision. Um, and I feel like it was kind of the only decision. So I feel like I've never really shared that with anyone, so I'm honored to be sharing that with this group today that I've forgiven this person um, because I wanna provide hope. So the reason that I wanna provide you know, this part of my story is that um, I hope that it gives hope. I believe that this program works and over you know, the course of time, my heart has been softened, if you will, so much so, um, so much over the years Um, with much thanks to EDA and to the STEPS. And I was able to accomplish something I never thought would ever be possible. Um, So as the book notes, prayer works. It says, um, I'll go back to the book really quickly. Um, So if willingness to make amends does not come easily, we suggest prayer. We pray for the health, success, and happiness of those to whom we need to make amends, even if it feels disingenuous at first. If we keep up this daily practice for a while, we may find we come, we may eventually mean what we say. So, prayer definitely worked for me. It helped soften my heart over time and helped me to forgive not only, um, you know, my sexual assaulter, but other people in my life. Um, I think prayer definitely works across the board. Okay, I'll uh, just jump in. This is Lisa. You have uh, about three minutes. Perfect. I have three more bullet points and then. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the one thing that I want to remember that I want you all to remember to go back to the what the step's actually all about. So remember that step eight calls us to do two things. One is that we make a list of all the people that we have harmed or treated badly and then two, we become willing to make amends to them all. So ultimately in step nine, you will go through your list with your sponsor who will help you kind of determine who's actually appropriate to make amends to and who's not, and what forms to make the amends in, whether it's in person, over the phone, through a letter, or maybe a living amends, for example. So my best advice as a sponsor to those is to to those working the steps is to not, try not to get too caught up in the actual process of making amends while you're working step eight. Uh, Remember that that comes in step nine. And so we're trying to remember to take, you know, this program and with any step you can apply this advice, but uh, particularly with step eight, um, you know, I try to focus on one step at a time and just make your list. Really, that's all, all you're asked to do is make a list of the people you have harmed and I uh, know that in step nine, you'll deal with with that when you get there and you may not ultimately make amends to everyone on your list, like it might not be appropriate. So that's how you work this step. That's my experience, strength and hope. And that's all I have for you. So I will pass with that. Thank you for letting me share. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Kay.